0: Amen. Good to see everybody. I'm going to be stealing this. Um, Hey, a couple of things I wanted to let you know. Um, We're going to pray real quick. Um, We've got one of our sweet high school girls, uh, Carly Evans, um, is in the hospital. Actually, she's in a procedure right now. They're trying to finish getting a blood clot out of her leg. And she had uh, a very scary day the last couple days, um, a blood clot from her knee to her hip. And uh, after a surgery she had an, for a hip. So we're, we're going to continue to pray for Carly this morning um, and uh, one, of our, one of our sister, our fr- friend churches around here. So let me kind of begin us with prayer before we dive in, okay? Heavenly Father, you are so good in your watchful eye. Over Carly. Um, God, we admit there was a lot of ang- anxiety yesterday and a lot of fear. And God, as she's not out of the woods yet, we just pray that you continue to be working with the doctors and um, be close to Jeff and Michelle and her sisters as she goes through these final procedures. Uh, we're just asking for healing. Um, we believe in the future you have ahead for Carly. And so we're, we're so thankful for a community here, Lord, that, that has reached out to them this last couple days. God, we lift up Abundant Life Church. And my friend Tim, and uh, just the transitions they're going through at their church, their search for a new place to meet, and their work they're doing with Arvada High School. God, would you bless that church? Would you give them the courage and the encouragement to continue forward, believing the best about each other and about what you're doing in this city. And may we be um, tremendous friends with them. We pray these things in your name, amen. If you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Matthew. And um, a couple of uh, disclaimers this morning, I'm wearing a t-shirt, which, uh, for two reasons, one, um, it's about to get hot in here, um, it's getting, about to get spicy in this place today, um, I'm actually really serious about that, so buckle up. Second of all, Angela's not here, so she couldn't tell me I couldn't <laughs> wear this, so I take every liberty as, as I can um, to do what I want to do. When she's not around. All right. So Matthew chapter four, if you have a Bible, I'd uh, love to have you open it to there. Last week, we kind of finished a little mini two-part thing on, on the spiritual side of these kingdoms, these two kingdoms that uh, Jesus tells us there are two kingdoms and the choice we have is do we believe him? Um, and these kingdoms are opposed to each other. And there's spiritual warfare all around us. And we talked about how that's not just like chasing demons around and stuff. It's, it's actually the choices we make in our lives daily um, that make up what warfare is. We talked about living at depth as a community. And one of the things we did uh, last week was when we took communion, we laid we we brought to the table those words those phrases of things in our lives that actually hold us captive that actually are places that have authority in our lives, things that have authority in our lives. And, and I got to tell you, um, it was just a a very emotional thing for me to read some of them. And you're like, you read them. Um, You didn't put your names on them. It's not like I know your handwriting. Give me a break. But the reality is, it's like, I just want to get a feel for like where we're at as a community. And and yes, I mean, pride and anger and lust and, and these things that that you guys honestly just and faithfully and and boldly brought to the table last week. I've been praying, I've been praying about them all week. One of the words that came up consistently was fear fear for different things, fear for my marriage, fear for our country, fear for whatever, job, whatever, fear came up a lot. And and I think we can all agree that that's like a natural thing. That's something that that we're all pulled into. As we continue today, I I want you to just remember that because there is something we're going to talk about as we get towards the end. But this, this book of Matthew, this gospel, this first century biography of Jesus written by Matthew is written to Jewish people. Jewish people that at the time Matthew was writing it are dealing with fear. They're dealing with a lot of things in their world that aren't right. And this series we're in is called The Upside-Down Kingdom because we believe that this kingdom that Jesus announces is one that is contrary to the one of this world. It's different than. It runs different, countercultural. It's supposed to be a kingdom that is pretty subversive to the ways this world works, in small ways and in big ways. And so today Jesus begins to invite some of some guys into this kingdom idea. And we pick it up in Matthew chapter 4 verse 18. And let me just read it to you. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, let me just um, kind of start with a little bit of background here, And, and I have a little map to help us out with this. And my hope is that today, okay, we would get a little taste of what this means and maybe even a bigger taste of what this means to follow Jesus. So here's a map of the Sea of Galilee um, and the Galilee region. And so uh, you may have seen something like this before. To the, right of the map, uh, uh, to the right of the lake, we showed a map last week that had the Decapolis. And we talked about the Decapolis and what that was. But if you can see towards the top, you can see Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. Those three towns in the Sea of Galilee on the north side of the sea were actually what scholars call the Gospel Triangle. Those are That's a region of heavy Jewish um, you know, Torah-following people during Jesus' time. And that was like a, a pocket of, of people that lived very Uh, intentionally around uh, the Old Testament values. Um, The lake itself is seven miles wide, 13 miles long. It is um, beautiful, crisp, clean water full of freshwater fish. Um, And as a fisherman, if you fished here, um, you were in an amazing spot because the fish that came out of the Sea of Galilee at the time was exported all over the place. In fact, it was a a delicacy to have in Rome, this freshwater fish from the Sea of Galilee. And so there's tons of fish. Jesus grew up more to the Southwest of the Sea of Galilee in a a little town called Nazareth. Um, he He was a carpenter, you know, we all know that he was a carpenter, but you might be thinking woodworker, he wasn't a woodworker, per se. He was a builder. Wasn't a lot of trees, wasn't a lot of wood. A lot of the things he built was out of rock. And so when you think hammer and nail, if you get the whole uh, image of a carpenter in your head, you need to kind of change that a little bit. It was more out of stone. It was, it was more, I mean, he was just mainly a builder. The word is tecton in, in the Greek. So, and so after three decades of obscurity, really, Jesus shows up, um, he does, uh, we, we, we went through the story with his baptism, uh, the temptation in the desert, and then he shows up on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he shows up to some fishermen, and he says, come follow me. And we, uh, we read this, we've read this over, you've heard this story over and over in your life, right? And you're like, wow, that's, that's interesting, it's kind of weird, I don't know. Um, you mean like, like, does that work the same? Uh, Jesus shows up in my cubicle. Come follow me. Well, sure. You know, it's like this weird kind of thing. We don't really know what's going on here culturally, but this, this itinerant teacher shows up and he invites these disciples to come and follow him. And now let me just share a little bit about these towns. Um, Bethsaida is actually a village, um, and the name of it, has it's, like, it's called House of Fish. And so these two, Bethsaida and Capernaum, are huge fishing villages. And then Chorazin and all three of those places have synagogues. All three of those places are basically 18 to 20 extended families that live in a little village together. So when you can think of an extended family, it's probably 60 people, eight to, 18 to 20 of those. So everybody knew you. They knew what family you came from. They knew what you did. They knew that your industry, your fishing trade, actually helped the whole group. And so that's kind of the, the area they lived in. And so Jesus shows up into these little villages, these little obscure villages. He doesn't go to a place a place called Scythopolis. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a hotbed for religious activity. He doesn't go there. He doesn't go to Scythopolis, which is this Greek uh, town that's huge, uh, universities. He, He doesn't go there. He goes to a couple little fishing villages. And this is a place of discipleship. Jesus didn't invent the word discipleship. This was already happening in these villages. So if you wanted to, um, you know, get further in your education when it came to the Jewish faith, you would follow people around that knew what they were talking about. And says they were fishermen, we talked about that. There's a guy named Josephus that talks about, you know, 300, 400 fishing boats on the lake at this time. Um, that, you know, that We talked about exporting things all over the place. Um, and so this, this area was just a mecca for uh, the trade. It was a mecca for following Torah. In fact, if you wanted to follow, if you wanted to be a disciple, the word is Talmid, um, and, and, and there's just this idea that it's not, a, it's, it's not just a student or a follower or a learner. It actually means you're an apprentice. Okay? And so much of the fishing trade was, was tap, passed down from father to son over generation after generation after generation, and you would apprentice, meaning I'm going to do it, now you do it while I watch you know, kind of a thing. And so there was this repeating of the steps and the systems and how things worked. In fact, when Jesus shows up, what it says they're, they're fixing their nets. They're mending and cleaning their nets. So after they come back from fishing, there was a process to getting all the sand and the stuff out of their nets so that the nets would last. This is all the things you would learn as an apprentice. And so you can imagine the big deal when Jesus shows up to... Uh, James and john uh, sons of Zebedee and he says, "Come follow me, and immediately they left their their boats and their dad okay that was a significant <laughs> significant thing to say they left not only they left their boats they left their they left their career they left their livelihood they left their trade they left their father, which means they left their their kind of generational uh, passing of the torch of who was going to lead this fishing industry going forward, they left that. They left the hired help. So, I mean, here's the thing. A lot of us think that these are poor fishermen just creeping by, hoping to catch a few fish each day. No, no. They were cranking. They were catching fish. They were exporting it all over. They were making money. In fact, um, it says they had hired help. You didn't have just any old hired help if you were kind of some slow upstart fishing deal. This was an organization. This was a machine. And so that's kind of the background of this. But my question for us today, and you can uh, get rid of the map, is what would cause four men to literally drop everything? What would, what would cause that? I mean, they're, they're, they're doing their thing. They're, they've got a good job. They've got a good future. What would cause these four guys to drop everything and follow this itinerant preacher, this teacher around? And I think there's uh, some background to this that I, I've shared with you guys before, but I'm gonna share it again. And then um, I, I just have a huge kind of messy application for us today, to be honest with you. And, uh, but it goes like this. If you're a kid and you grow up in that gospel triangle and you're between the ages of six and 12, you go to school. You go to school and the school you're in, the, the, the phase of school you're in is called bet sefer, And it is a um, kind of like a beginning school Idea. They were very interested in this area of the world at this time in educating their children in the ways of the Old Testament. And so you, as a six-year-old, would start learning the Old Testament. You would start learning Genesis through Deuteronomy. In fact, they would give you a, like a, almost like a clipboard, so to speak, like a plank, um, and, and, and the rabbi would put honey all over it. With the words of the Torah, the words of, 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 of some famous verses on, on there, and he would have you hold it, read it, memorize it, and whenever you licked your fingers, you would taste the honey. Whenever you touched your fingers to your mouth, and the idea behind that was to get the kids to understand that the word of God was sweetness was something good, something they wanted, something they wanted to crave. And so from a very young age, they would teach Torah. And if you were six years old, all the way through 12, you would actually have the Old Testament, basically Genesis through Deuteronomy, memorized. It was a very oral tradition, right? So can you imagine memorizing (laughs) those first five books? I mean, have you ever even read Leviticus? So... Yeah, knock that one out, right? They would memorize it. They would know it. It would become a part of them. I mean, we know lines from movies like Dumb and Dumber, and we're proud of ourselves. But they knew the Pentateuch. Now, at age 12, there was a transition that would happen. Agricultural society, I mean, they needed arms and legs, right? Right? So the kids that weren't like top of the class would have been me. Um, you would learn the family biz. You would get to start fishing. As a 12 or 13 year old girl, you would probably be married and pregnant. As a 12, 13 year old boy, you'd be fishing six days a week. Have so we got any 12 and 13 year olds in here? Anybody? No? Isaac, what are you? Okay, so you're pretty, pretty soon, you'll be fishing all day. All day. So, I mean, if you think your life's hard right now as a 12 or 13 year old, you're not fishing all day and you're not pregnant. So, you're good, hopefully not. So, you're good. So, it's kind of a big deal. But if you, during that first bet suffer, like teaching time, if you showed promise, if you showed, like you were the cream of the crop, you were asking questions, you were kind of really getting into all of this, if you were the best of the best, you went on to further schooling called Bet Talmud. And Bet Talmud was this idea that you would actually head to the synagogue, that there was attached to the, uh, to the synagogue would be uh, a place for these students to be, kind of coached and challenged. There would be Pharisees and scribes and rabbis that would come through and teach. They would give their commentary on certain pieces of the Old Testament and you would continue to memorize more of the Old Testament. In fact, you'd finish it. You would know the Old Testament from Genesis and for us to Malachi, but for them, the end of it was Second Chronicles. They just ordered it differently and you would know the history, and you would know the prophets, and you would be able to quote things, and you would be, in a sense, when we see Jesus walking around, and he just quotes the prophets, Jesus went through this. Jesus was Betsefer, Bet Talmud, and at the cream of the crop continued on even further, but if you didn't make it out of this one, then you'd go start learning fishing, and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, this second phase was just for the boys. The final phase was something called bet midrash. Bet midrash is a a way of, of learning even more. And the only way you could learn even more was to follow a rabbi all over the place, everywhere he went. And, and you would find a rabbi that you, that you wanted to follow, that you wanted to emulate, and you would, you would just find a way to follow this rabbi anywhere. Anywhere. If this rabbi was going to Capernaum, you went to Capernaum. If he, if, if he was going on to you know, Bethsaida, you would go to Bethsaida. Everywhere this rabbi went, you would listen to him teach, you would watch him eat, You would follow him everywhere. You would sleep in the same room. You would pray when he prayed. You would pray how he prayed. You would use the same voice inflection as your rabbi. That's how serious it was. And this rabbi at any moment would turn around and question you and drill you. Where does it say this? What does it mean here? And and just to find out if you had what it took to be, A rabbi. Because the whole goal of the rabbi was to create people, to create other rabbis that could carry on the rabbi's work. Three things that would happen for you if you followed this rabbi around. The first one was you would learn how this rabbi taught, like, you learn what they would say in any situation. Like, Anything, like how would the rabbi say it? How would the rabbi uh, think it? It would basically taking on the theology, the teaching, the interpretation of that rabbi, the worldview of that rabbi, okay? The second goal for you would be to become just like your rabbi, dress like your rabbi, eat like your rabbi, everything. Talk to people like your rabbi, help people like your rabbi. The third one was to carry on the rabbi's work in the world. So if the rabbi at the end of it said, it would turn to you and say, go and make disciples of your own, then you would go and be a rabbi. And so some of these phrases probably sound familiar to you because we hear Jesus saying, The difference between Jesus and the rabbis of that time is Jesus pursued his own followers. Like it's it's solely backwards, and you could call it upside down, really. That Jesus shows up at the side of a lake with a bunch of guys who totally flunked out of Beth Beth Zephyr to be fishermen. And he says to them, come follow me. And it says they immediately dropped their net. So why would they do that? I mean, here he's got this, these ordinary guys, right? These guys that didn't really make the cut. And Jesus says, I want to make you fishers of men. And that idea of fishers of men, I wrote it down here somewhere. This idea of being fishers of men, it's this idiom. It's actually a way of, of saying, I want you to be the kind of people that capture people's heads and their hearts. That's what I want you to be. I want you to be the kind of people that capture people's heads and their hearts. And so these guys are ordinary, average people. They're unheard of. Uh, They never sought out a rabbi. Never thought they could. The question for me to you is this. Have you ever had someone believe in you so much that it changed you? And maybe that was a while ago. And maybe it never happened, but they believed in you so much that it changed you. Maybe your whole life, you've just heard the voice, the script in your head that says, no, you can't do that. You're never going to do that. You could never do that. You could never be that good. You could never lead people. You could never really uh, change much in this world. Maybe you've heard that all the time. But if we could just kind of back up for a second. The God of this world who made you, the Father in heaven who made you believes in you. And so when Jesus shows up to this lake to a bunch of unqualified fishermen and says, I want you to follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you like me. That did something in them that rattled something that I don't know. I don't know if we really get. One of my favorite movies is The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, and don't get hungry. Um, <laughs> it's The Count of Monte Cristo and <laughs> Guy Pierce, If you haven't seen it, Guy Pierce, Jim Caviezel. So Guy Pierce and Jesus. And they, uh, it's powerful. Read the book first, but if, you, if you're not into reading, like Troy, just get the movie. It's really good. <laughs> And, and it's huge. And um, so there's a spot in the movie, and I love it, where he's like, I don't believe God anymore. I mean, he's just at the bottom of everything, and, and, and he's like, I do not believe in God anymore. And the other character goes, God believes in you, though. And, and not to make this uh, God loves you, and so you can believe in yourself kind of, cheesy message. That's not what I'm going at here because you, you, you know, it's not like you're a winner. Um, cause you're probably not, but like, I'm just, I'm not, but, but what, what he's, what I'm saying here is, is, that Jesus has this belief in these disciples in a way that pulls them out of the life they have, pulls them out of what they've created for themselves, pulls them out of the way they see the world into some other activity that is absolutely life-altering. And so really what our belief is is that Jesus believes in us, the creator in the universe, that we're created in the image of God, that with the Holy Spirit, every believer has the ability to be like Jesus. What does that mean? We're capable, it says we're capable of extraordinary things in scripture all the time. Paul says it. Jesus says it that we can actually be like him. Listen to what happens next. I'm just going to read what happens next. It might be on the screen. I don't know. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news. And and, and by the way, they're following him now, okay, of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And so they're following him now and understand what they understand. They come from a discipleship culture. They know what this means. They are learning what their rabbi teaches. They're learning his worldview. They're learning his interpretation. They're learning everything he thinks. They're mimicking what he does. They're trying to be like him. This is just the beginning. So that one day they will carry on his work in the world. That's what's happening here. And we just think it's part of an interesting story. John's gospel, John talks about how Jesus says, God chose you. He says, I chose you. And and I don't know if you ever think about this much in your life, but you may think, well, I came to the conclusion that God is real. No, No, in that, before that, around that, through that, God chose you. God is working in you. We were talking in 10-man table this last week. There was a couple words in the, in the passage we were looking at, the word wondering. And I got to thinking about the word wondering. And sometimes it's in our wondering that God begins to move in us. In our skepticism, in our, in our wondering that God begins to draw on us. It's this crazy idea of an upside down way of doing things. I mean, you might think that you're on the low end of the bell curve as far as the abilities that you think you need. And God says, I chose you. So what does this all mean today? Like really, what does this all mean? This discipleship thing, is it? and we say this all the time, is it it church attendance? It can't just be that, right? can't be that. It's not the end game. What does this mean today? Well, I'm going to shock you when I say this, but it actually means the same thing. It just means the same thing. That we would learn his teaching. That it would become our... Our focus, when we get it, it, the passion of our lives, the focus of our lives, would be to be like him. And how do we be like him? We learn his teaching. We pray prayers like, show me who you are, show me how to follow you. We immerse our, our minds and our hearts and our language and our, and, our, and, our, and, our, and our perspectives in the teachings of Jesus. We try to imitate Jesus. And now it's hard to do that because we're not following around and watching his every movement, but we would do what Jesus would do. That'd make a great bracelet, wouldn't it? (laughs) Man, it's kind of cheesy 90s thing, but I mean, you know, I mean, as much, you know, as that got trashed a little bit, it's kind of true, right? I mean, if we're trying to, if we're trying to, if we're trying to model if we're trying to be like Jesus, I mean, it's kind of like, oh, how do I deal with this ethical situation in my workplace? How do I deal with my children who are driving me crazy? How do I, how do I respond to this person on, on, on social media? How, what, what does this look like to be like Jesus right now in my car, in my workplace, staring at the ceiling full of depression? What does this look like? What does this look like to take these teachings and to to orient them around my life such that my life begins to follow in a way that is imitating Jesus? And then this idea of carrying on this work in the world. The word send when it got translated a few centuries later in the Latin Vulgate, actually takes a Latin word, missio. This means to go, to get out, to be sent to something. And it's in fact, 2,000 years later, the invitation has not changed for us. It really hasn't. And this is where it gets really, really interesting because we try to resist it. I mean, when when the scripture says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, this idea of we would imitate God and how God gives and how God feeds and how God works and how God shares and how God loves and how God welcomes, that defines how we imitate. And I always find it interesting when when in the disciples, there was always a clear distinction in the Gospels between the disciples, the apprentices, and the crowd. Okay? Both were always around. Sometimes Jesus would teach to everybody, and then it says he turned to the disciples, and he said this, or he explained this. But the crowds were, you know, they believed in Messiah, right? They they showed up for teaching. They showed up for healing. They showed up for maybe a confrontation, right, you know, with the Pharisees. That would be kind of cool to watch, right? Some of you guys really like confrontation. You're like, yes. You know, so maybe maybe they showed up because they thought that was going to happen. Maybe they showed up for healing. But they were part of the crowd. But the disciples were a smaller group. Scripture says that somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 120 total, but then there was the the 12. So you have this distinction in Scripture, and it's very clear. It's a literary thing that that was very clear with all the writers. The crowd and the disciples. There's a clear difference and distinction between the two. And so how I'm going to just kind of wrap this up is this. Are, are, are we a face in the crowd? Are you a face in the crowd? Are you a disciple? And and I guess, I guess maybe we could look at it like this is the driving is what's driving you forward in your life. Learning Jesus' teaching, becoming more like him, and carrying on his work in the world. If it's not, you may not be a disciple. Now, you may freak out at that. You may say, well, wait a second, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're not like loved and saved and all those Christiany words. I'm not saying that. It just means you're part of the crowd. And, and so the question is, where could this hit us today? I mean we formed this series way back. And on a whiteboard, we kind of wrote down some things that were just on our hearts and on our minds at the time. And and, and 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 there's like, what hasn't been on our minds right now, but politics, right? I mean, it's just been dealing with this for just a long time. And in this idea of just how a, a political campaign in America runs, and you have you have the announcement of a presidential candidate, right? There's like a big announcement, there's cameras and everything, and they've, they've thrown their name in the ring. And so in a sense, this first four weeks, we've been talking about Jesus for president. And just, I mean, this idea that Jesus shows up and he announces a new kingdom, right? He announces, repent for the kingdom of God is here. There's, this, there's a new candidate. Next week, we start the Sermon on the Mount, and you know what that is? That's his platform. It's his ethics, is what this looks like when the meat hits the street, right? And so if we're gonna be people that sincerely and fervently and desperately want to be like Jesus, we have to take on his worldview on his his understanding of people, his view of this world, and we have to let some of the things in our lives go. And a lot of times what happens is when you preach a message like this or like someone asks the classic, what are your nets? You know, what are you going to drop and follow Jesus? Maybe it's a career or a bad relationship or, you know, all those things apply. And don't get me wrong. Those are, it's a good way to look at all of this. But maybe it's more than that for us. Maybe it's more than See, I think I'm about to make all of us mad. You guys cool with that? Do we have enough like relational stock that I could maybe lower the tank a little bit today? A lot of times I think you and I read scripture through Western eyes. America first is not the yoke of Jesus. And that might offend some of you. Unless lest you think that since you don't, didn't vote for Trump, you're free from accusation. And I'm not saying that I'm not, I'm going to get emails. I'm going to write the first one to myself, so. Let's take a deep breath, okay? Um, We have a different yoke, a different teaching, a different way to see this world than what Republicans tell us and what Democrats tell us and what political news organizations tell us and blogs tell us. And what I'm trying to communicate to you is on both sides, we're wrong. Both, Both sides claim a moral superiority and we're both desperately at fault because we've believed, we've bought the lie that institutions will do what we're supposed to do. We've hitched our wagon to things like capitalism, globalism, isolationism, materialism, consumerism, and then we fought about it. And maybe the yoke is what we need to drop, okay? because as we're staring at the news and whatever you think about it right now and refugees not being allowed in our country, Jesus was a refugee and he never had a place to lay his head. And you might say, but I know, and on one side who's saying, let them in, do you have the other side that might be saying, full of fear, like, this is scary. How do you respond to someone who's got fear? Well, Jesus wouldn't call them a racist. The last eight years of our country, we've deported 2.4 million people. That's more people than any administration combined in the 20th century. So if you think your team's winning, your team's not either. There are stories there of heartbroken families being ripped apart. And all I'm saying is, this is just an illustration. This is not the point of the message. All I am saying is, could it be that following Jesus is a lot more complex and messy and difficult and frustrating and full of pain and suffering and joy and passion and adventure than all of us could imagine. And if you are leaving it to hitching your wagon to something politically, you're not carrying the yoke of Jesus. We're not imitating Jesus. There's good on both sides. There's rough on everything. Here's the thing. So what I'm trying to say, and I'm totally off track. I didn't mean to go all the way down this road, but if we're gonna move from being a crowd to a disciple, we have to embrace a few things. You have to embrace complexity in this world. I think it's easier to follow Jesus when the disciples followed Jesus. He even said that. He says it to Thomas, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen me. Blessed are those who have believed and haven't seen me do all this stuff and seen how I've done it and seen how I've cared for people and seen how I've healed the sick and raised the dead and all this stuff. Blessed are those, I mean, for those who who believe and haven't seen me, that's us. And we live in a very, very complex world. And so we have to embrace complexity. We have to embrace teachability. We have to embrace error. You're going to get it wrong. Welcome to the club. I'm going to screw up. I'm going to fall back into this other yoke of thinking about being an isolationist or being a materialistic person or being just a consumer instead of taking on the yoke of Jesus. I'm going to screw up all the time. Are you with me? Do you you have the grace for me screwing up on this? I'll try to have the grace for you too. And we embrace each other in this. See, I I want for you what I want for me. What I want for me is to know this Jesus, to be like him and to carry on his work in the world. That's what I want. I really want it. And if you want it too, I think that this could be a really great, joy-filled, suffering-filled, pain-filled, mysterious, adventure, beautiful apprenticeship thing. And so, as you're composing your emails today, will you wrestle with all this with me? will you you honestly read the words of Jesus and the phrases of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and please take as many of the filters out of the way as you can. Take the colored lenses of capitalism and conservatism and liberalism and you just take those, please take those away as best you can. What is Jesus saying? What are his teachings? What does he want me to be? How do I be like him in a world that is growing more and more angry and divisive by the day? And what does it look like going forward from here? Let me just tell you about our path as a church between now and Easter, the Sermon on the Mount, the ethics of Jesus. There's gonna be times where we're gonna practice some of this stuff in a way that might be very uncomfortable Maybe not here, you know. Maybe not like I'll split up into groups. And uh, no, um, we're gonna we're gonna have opportunities for you to to engage in ways um, outside of this uh, okay. that might stretch you. They might cause you some anxiety that might make something in you sacrificial. See, when we begin to live this Jesus way, we become more generous, we become more loving, we become more selfless. And it's really hard.